0: This week on the Table Podcast.
1: Health is without cost, but healthcare got a cost. So we have to control. We have to control even money. And obviously, industries try to push us. We have to understand and we have to remind us that we decide the proper treatment for a patient. For sure, I can do 32 verteboplasty in one man. No problem. It's easy. But what's the use of? How I change the life of that patient if I don't change a coin. I mean, no sense. We have to do something that is useful for patient, not for us.
0: Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Backtable.com.
2: First. A brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Back Table podcast. Now, back to the episode.
0: This is your host, Jacob Fleming, reported from Dallas, Texas. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome a very special international guest. He's a pioneer in the landscape of spinal interventional radiology, prolific researcher and clinician, and among his many titles, he's the chair of the European Society of Neuroradiology, Diagnostic and Interventional Spine section and Director of the Minimally Invasive Spine Therapy Department at the Mediterranean Institute of Oncology in Catania, Italy. I'm speaking, of course, of the one and only Professor Luigi Manfrey. Dr. Manfrey, thank you so much for your
1: time and welcome to the show. Hi, Jacob. It's, a, it's an honor for me to be there. And as I told you, it's a, one of the few podcasts that I follow, in, uh, I mean, in my life. So it's a really, I'm really honored to be one of your guests.
0: Well, I have to say it's a real pleasure to speak to you today. And I appreciate your patience and cooperation in, in finding a mutual time for this international discussion. And of course, you're joining us from across the Atlantic Ocean. So can you tell our listeners, where are you now and what time is it?
1: Well, oh, yeah, up to now, it's uh, around 7 p.m. I'm in Sicily. Uh, this year is a very strange weather. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's October and it's like summertime. Uh, I mean, there are people that go to the beach me too honestly if i have a little bit of time in between one procedure and one i mean <laughs> study but uh, i mean it's a nice place to live honestly telling the truth i i do love my country particularly the south particularly for the food
0: absolutely i, I can see why it'd be a great place to live and also a great place for listeners to attend a course uh, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later and i have been looking forward to our discussion for many months and in fact You've been on my radar for a very long time since Doug Beal referred to your work on interspinous spacers and spinous process augmentation on an earlier episode that many of our listeners have heard. And so I'm thrilled to discuss that topic in depth today. But first, I want to hear about your story. So can you please tell us about your life so far, your upbringing, education and training, where you've worked and where you are now?
1: Well, I I started doing my... Classical study. You know, in Italy, generally, when I was young, you got only two choices. Do mathematics or scientific studies or do classic. And I come from a family of teachers. So definitely, I was involved in classical study. That meant Greek, Latin, and I loved a lot of Greek, particularly the Greek language, the old Greek language. Then I moved to university, so I started to do medicine. I became a doctor. I was supposed to become an ophthalmologist, this is something that m- not many people knows. When I, uh, I got my degree, my paper was about the retinal detachment or something like this. So the very day after my degree, I immediately decided, but it's typical for me. You know, I'm a little bit, you know, sometimes too impulsive. Okay. So I decided that th- this is what not my job. I didn't want to spend time. It's an excellent job, but not for me. So I decided I was involved in radiology world. My teacher at that time told me, we don't have neuroradiologists. We don't have sufficient neuroradiologists in our area. So you will start to do neuroradiology. I hate neuroradiology at that time. So I said, no, please. But he forced me, you know how university people are. You have to do this. Otherwise you're out. Okay. I started to do neuroradiology and honestly, it was love at first glance. That means I couldn't do anything else. But when I started in radiology, because I was supposed to be an ophthalmologist, I started to study a lot of ophthalmo radiology and ENT radiology. So I became a sort of an expert about the high and the here. I remember we did a lot of funny scientific papers on uh, the high, experimental paper on the high. So I put a lot of high coming from cows that I, I mean, I I, I got from uh, Butcher's. I put all these eyes in my refrigerators. And sometimes when I open the, the, the refrigerator, it seems like, you know, Dexter refrigerators. It's very, <laughs> it was very, I mean, anxious. After ophthalmological idea, I skipped to pediatric neuroradiology because I say, okay, no, no, no. I want to be a pediatric neuroradiologist. And I went to Canada and I stayed there in Toronto Sick Children Hospital when Harvard Nash was there. So I got the honor to learn from Harwood, Derek Harvard Nash, that was the father, one of the father of pediatric neuroradiology in the world, definitely in the U.S. And then I came back and I started to taste the blood. And so I started to do vascular, interventional, but it was not for me, honestly. Okay, it was not for me. And one of my father, professional father, told me, Luigi, why don't you start to do injection in the spine? We invented the ozone therapy. At that time, the ozone was something new for us. You know that ozone is a sort of Italian creation, okay? It's an an Italian idea. Now ozone is widespread. We got a big company in my hands-on course. This is an American company. They create an excellent ozone product, for example. But at that time, ozone was the only thing we had. And with this ozone and with this needle, I started to do my treatment. And I remember that with this needle, I was convinced to be a great neurosurgeon. But we, we had only one stupid needle and we did only injection in the back of people. <laughs> okay, but considering that we were used to do our reports on films, okay, for us, it was a great step. I mean, a small step for a man, a great step for mankind. (laughs) That's that's
0: fantastic. I love that. And it gets into what I wanted to talk about next, which is your interest in spine procedures progressing from lots of funny little needles, as I've heard you say, to what you refer to as covert surgery. And I'd like to hear about that. And I I also want to hear about your metaphor uh, of this experience of the Cinderella syndrome with vascular interventional neuroradiology, and then David and Goliath syndrome in regard to the <laughs> spine <laughs> surgeons. I, I love those two comparisons. i like to hear you talk about those.
1: Yeah, you know, Jack, the fact of Cinderella, this is something that I say in my conference. I mean, Cinderella symptoms came from the fact that when I was in my neuro-radiological depa- old neuroradiological departments, there were vascular people, neuroradiological vascular interventional, you know how vascular are. We are vascular and you are a plan B because they say (laughs) vascular, means (laughs) vascular is the top and the rest is, "Mm, okay. And honestly, that's true because they got so incredible stuff. I mean, balloon, catheters, it was a magic time for vascular interventional. I remember it was the time where neurosurgeons fight against neuroradiologists to understand who is who and who has to treat what. So uh, came a lot of new stuff from Guglielmi detachable coils to the most modern things. And we were very, very hungry about this. Then was our time. And we were spine interventional neuroradiologists We're really lucky because it was a magic time where all the devices becomes to be smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because they start orthopedics, spine surgeons, neurosurgeons. Start to use big stuff, then they understand that the smaller it is, the better it is. So all the companies invested on the idea of being minimal invasive. Minimal invasive is a magic word that means to be not too much aggressive. You know that the big problem we have nowadays is the overtreatment of people, and we exaggerate sometimes. So there was a time where all the devices become smaller and smaller and smaller. But if something becomes small, you need a magic eye. You need something, I mean, to be extremely precise. And so it was our time, radiological time, because we got powerful machine to see perfectly even the smallest things. So the combination of using small things in an extremely precise way, that is a way that all our new stuff, CT, X-ray, angio, MR, ultrasound, make possible doing this kind of treatment was a perfect marriage, according to me. That came my idea to apply all or almost all the treatment that conventional spine surgeons does in the operating room, just in my hybrid room, using the CT, I'm, I'm addicted to CT, so I use mainly the CT, but we use sometimes the fluoro, the angio, I'm starting to use the MR, doing the same treatment, but according to me, faster, more precise, and in a an easiest way, definitely. Because we see exactly in a real time what is happening in the patient without being obliged to cut the patient or just to do small cuts. This is fundamental today, even for the post-op, for the recovery of a patient. So when you say David against Golia was another idea that you say, I I got a lot of friends, and then I got a lot of friends uh, among spine surgeons, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons. Originally, when I started, they fight me. Because, you know, mm, I started to do things that they were used to. But we got two factors. Factors number one, so many patients, honestly. Okay, we are not talking about, thanks God, not about Aneurysm or brain vascular malformation. We are talking about back pain. That means talking about flu. It's so common. Everyone, I got back pain. Everyone got back pain. So it's a very, very, a lot of patient means you cannot face the problem by yourself. So probably this was one advantage. The other advantage in my life is that if you are very prudent, if you are very careful, if you are very precise, you have success. And when you have success, people, intelligent people, recognize it. You know what? Three weeks ago, I got my revenge. I mean, I I, I put a spacer in a patient and everything was perfect. And the patient phoned me and, and told me, you are unbelievable because all the, the symptoms disappear. But it's not the fact of the treatment, the fact was the patient, was an orthopedic surgeon. So if an orthopedic surgeon was to be operated by me, okay, that means that probably I did something right in my life.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's quite the compliment. And I just love what you describe about you started out using these injection therapies and just with needles, and you honed your capabilities in this ultra-minimally invasive way, of course, under image guidance. So I love looking at the pictures in your books because the implants you put in they're so perfectly placed, and it's a bit of a criticism. I think that radiologists sitting in the reading room, to be honest, love to criticize hardware placement, and we try to be collegial about that. And of course, it's a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking. But what I love about seeing your images is you use the radiological eye to place those so perfectly, and and it's like you're you're just applying those very precise injection principles to then deliver whatever the the end product is i think that that's what makes this area i think the radiologists involvement in this area very unique from other specialties who are practicing some of the same procedures
1: exactly because thanks god i I mean understanding imaging is becoming at least as Equally uh, equally important as doing a procedure. I mean, as moving your hands. So if you understand image, it's a fifty percent of your success for discriminating patient and doing the procedure. So radiologists obviously get a little bit of advantage, according to me, because okay, understanding images is our bread. It's for normal for us. So we get a little bit. We are a little bit step over. I mean, we got a, a little advantage in comparison to a surgeons, because all the procedures are coming easier and easier, honestly, because they, the industries are doing a great job in making easy something that is difficult. But you need to be precise. And being precise means not only moving the hands in the, ro- in the proper way, but looking in the right place. But this is something that radiologists does for ages. So probably it's a, the right combination in the right time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A really exciting time to be seeing all this unfold and for radiologists to be involved in it. And the precision of the treatment, like you spoke about, needing to be as on the submillimeter as possible. And the the example I think of in in some of your work that I've seen is the intra-articular facet fixation, uh, which is not the topic for today, but something that hope we can talk about a little bit. It's just so precise, getting right down into the facet joint at the correct angle and deploying this thing that's only a few millimeters. So can you just sort of a sidebar, just tell us a little bit about that. I think that is just the, it's the definition of minimally invasive. There's nothing that could be more minimally invasive than that, in my opinion. No, definitely.
1: If you consider that we managed to put screws in the facet in, um, I would say, 25 minutes, with a small cut, small incision of five millimeter, completely in local anesthesia, and you have to put a screw of five millimeter diameter in a facet that is seven millimeter. And if you if you use the wrong angle, you will be inside the foramen or you will be inside the spinal canal. But the great advantage, according to me, is using the CT. I know in advance the proper angle, the right length, the right sides of screws. I remember that when I started, people that come, you know, specialists that come and they give you screws. Okay, uh, they are used to stay with surgeons in the operating room, and at very last time, the surgeon says, "Okay, I want a 55 millimeter screws." Generally speaking, I call the man one week before, and I say, "In one week, I will use a screws of 55." And he generally says, I mean, are you uh, a wizard? How do you know exactly the length and the size? Simply I say, because I pre-plan, I pre-plan my treatment. I study my patient, then I work on the images and I perfectly know what I have, what I'm supposed to use in that patient. That's why I know everything in advance.
0: Absolutely, and so it's one of the other advantages of being a radiologist. And it's not to say surgeons aren't very good at evaluating their pre-op imaging and and would have the ability to do that. But the ultra minimally invasive approaches that you're using, you actually it's it's kind of a luxury because then you you go to sleep the night before knowing, okay, I'm going to use a, a 55 millimeter screw, and you know what the plan is, and you're kind of rehearsing it already. And I I think that's very common for surgeons and proceduralists to do, but to have the exactness of the procedure down to that level really helps in making these approaches as minimally invasive as possible. And along with the precision of the eye and the the measurement in terms of preoperative, intraoperative, and so on, I think this brings up the point of precision with patient selection. This is something I've heard you discuss in regards to the failure rate of spacers, which we'll get into a little bit later. But things get criticized for failing or not curing the patient's pain. And as as you've said, putting in a spacer for back pain, that's not perhaps the patient had back pain and another issue that the spacer is good for. But to be just kind of throwing these out, because uh, no harm, no foul. It's a very small, you know, minimal trauma procedure. That's not really the right way to look at these. You need to understand, okay, we've done the imaging workup, physical exam, the diagnostic uh, facet block, and we know that the facet instability is the cause here. I believe that that combined precision in diagnosis is key to making these treatments a success. And has that been your experience?
1: yeah that definitely definitely i mean considering the fact that as i told you when we started we have to face against goliath I mean goliath where are neurosurgeons we're orthopedic surgeons so we have to be three times more precise and more severe in patient selection but we have number one okay number one we are doctor okay we are radiologists but we before being a radiologist we are clinicians So we have to evaluate our patient. We got the sufficient culture to understand the imaging of our patient. And so the selection should be extremely precise. We can talk about spacer if you want. I mean, spacer, when we started to to use spacer, I remember, there were always some critics coming from the audience, because there were always surgeons, as you said, that says, no, I put spacers and they didn't work. I have to remove them. I have to replace them. But the fact is that I always say, tell me why you use Spacer in that kind of people. The fact is that our job is becoming easy and precise, but easy. And it's a risk because when something is easy, everyone wants to do everything. It's like, remember, using something new and this something that I'm sure is not, doesn't happen only legally. Do you remember the old... American Far West movie, there were always a man with a horse saying, I got a potion and this potion is magic for stomachache, headache, uh, you know, um, sexual problems, everything. Hair loss, okay, everything. Okay, we don't have one solution for everything. So in Italy, for example, when Spacer came out, they tried to use Spacer for a lot of things. Back pain, hernia, facetal syndrome, scoliosis. I, I saw people with spacer for scoliosis. It's completely unbelievable. If you use the right things in the wrong patient, obviously, this is the best way to have a success. That's true. But, but this is not the fault of the device, it's the fault of the doctors. This is not related to the device. The device works properly. If you use it in the proper way, coming back to the far West, the magic potion they sell worked perfectly because after for three, four months, all the people have completely no pain because they discover after, okay. okay, Madame Curie was born later on after that time. So the magic potion that the old man in the far West sell to the people was radioactive water. So if you drink radioactive water, your pain—you know how radiation are—they disappear for two to three months. Then they, you die for cancer. But this is another story. And in fact, they discover they discover that the skeleton of all these guys are still radioactive, still now.
0: Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Unfortunately, not a situation like the Hulk or Spider-Man where it granted uh, uh, superpowers <laughs> uh, or or radiologist vision. <laughs> But it, I completely agree with all that. The onus is on the interventionist or the surgeon to be using the right tool for the right job. And before we specifically talk a little bit more about spacers, I do want to hear about the situation of uh, your current employment at uh, IOM and what is the practice like there? What's kind of the breadth and depth of your practice? And how about the relationships with the surgeons? Do David and Goliath, eat lunch together in the cafeteria, or is there still a little bit of distance?
1: No, thanks God. I mean, it depends on I mean, uh, the level of, uh, according to me, culture. Of, uh, man, I'm really close friend with a lot of neurosurgeons. They call me, they send me patient, and I send them patient. I mean, intelligent people understand that when we have to face with patient, we cannot treat everyone with everything. So there are people that definitely should be treated by me but it's because it's better. And there are people that I cannot treat and I have to be sufficiently honest to say to the patient, it's better if you go to a neurosurgeon because this kind of disease should be better treated by a neurosurgeon. Intelligent neurosurgeons appreciated it and they started to send me patients. It's, it's a sort of a, I mean, um, how do you say, a volano. I mean, it's it's a, it's a sort of a, Powerful engine. If I start to collect patient and I send them patient, they send me patient. And everyone are happy. I am happy. They are happy. Patient, that is more important. Patients are happy. The The most important thing is, according to me, to be honest and to understand your limit. limits of your techniques in comparison to the others. So if you start to behave this way, it's difficult that people fight you because they understand that at the end of the story, we are not on the same edge of the river. I mean, we are not fighting. Uh, okay, there are still people that got the, you know, they look to their small garden, but generally speaking, like, as my master used to say, things should be done by people that are able to. I mean, it doesn't matter if I am an orthopedic or a surgeon or a radiologist or whatever I am. According to me, in the future, all these things will disappear. We will let image-guided surgeons, no matter if we come from radiological area, surgical area, orthopedic, physiotherapists, or blah, blah. Pain therapists, why not? Anesthesiologists. The most important thing is do the right thing in the proper way.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love to hear about that relationship between, between you and the surgeons, which sounds very symbiotic. So you are particularly at a cancer center, and so can you uh, tell me about the patients that you're treating? Are you treating a majority of patients who are living with cancer, and are you seeing more of a community aspect as well? The As you said, low back pain is extremely prevalent. So tell me a little bit about your patients.
1: Well, I would say 50-50, or even a little bit less about oncology, because paradoxically, I'm in an oncological area, in an oncological institute, I'm I'm the responsible of all the minimally invasive therapy. That means that it's a sort of a strange hybrid neurosurgical, neuroradiological department where I, have, I am the head department. That there is even one neurosurgeon with me. Okay, it's not a problem. It's, I'm happy. And we discuss a lot. I do a lot of treatment for neoplasm, but I would say... 30, 35 percent, because I'm extremely, extremely selective. Sometimes I see people that are treated for uh, some treatment. It's a little bit questionable. I mean, if you have a patient with one metastasis, there are a lot of things we can do. We can destroy the metastasis. We can do radioablation. We can do cryoplation, We can put PMMA inside all these things all together in the, mean, in the same time. But this change the strategy of the treatment of the disease. If I have a patient with 25 metastases, no sense in treating one while there are, I mean, cryoablation or radioablation. For sure, I will put PMMA avoiding the vertebral collapse. I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about treating the patient, so curing the patient. So if I want to cure a patient and I have a patient with one or two lesions, it's reasonable. I do something. But if I have a patient with so many, I mean, widespread disease, we have to balance our treatment in comparison to other treatment. That's why even if I work in an oncological institute, I do 35% oncological treatment and 65% conventional, you know, degenerative problems. Simply because I'm selective, and because there are guidelines, there are a very interesting guidelines published on the oncologist. That is one of the main journals from oncological world, and they analyze. Even Jack Jennings was one of the men that wrote these guidelines. Vitruplasty is not for all; it's for many, but not for all, according to the level of disease. What's the I mean situation of general situation of the patient? number of metastases, position of a metastasis. So the message is that the fact that you have a gun doesn't mean that you have to shot. And you're not supposed to shot to everyone, definitely. So we have weapons. We must understand when we should use that weapons. This is not a license to kill. Okay. Simply, you have to understand what to do and when. This is the best way to cooperate with oncologists, surgeons, whatever you want.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And as our armamentarium continues to increase and the invasiveness continues to decrease, there are going to be a lot of requests for cutting-edge procedures from other clinicians or even from patients directly who, who don't understand as well as we hopefully do the indications for the procedure and contraindications or when another tool is better for the job. As you said, the patient with diffuse osseous mets in the spine, can we feasibly ablate every single level from head to toe and fill with cement and do so without significant extravasation? Perhaps. Yes, it would take all week, but that doesn't mean we should. And so understanding as you said earlier, to be a clinician first and to shed more of the traditional radiologist role of being the expert consultant who who is sent cases or, or or said, please do this. We do have to really evaluate the patient very stringently. And I love to hear that your practice is very selective. It's like you said, just because you are a gun doesn't mean you can fire at everything. You need to know when not to fire, and when to call for help.
1: Exactly. We have, we have another risk. I mean, as my, one of my masters used to say, health is without cost. But healthcare got a cost. So we have to control. We have to control even money. And obviously, industries try to push us. They try to push us. So we have to understand and we have to remind us that we decide. And we have to decide the proper treatment for a patient. Exactly as you say, Jacob, for sure, I can do 32 verteboplasty in one man. No problem. It's easy. But what's the use of how I change the life of that patient? If I don't change a coin, I mean, no sense. We have to do something that is useful for patient, not for us. That's the main message we have to understand. If you are honest. I think that even if you do a mistake the patient will forgive you for sure
0: yeah with the understanding that uh you're taking a chance in in a difficult situation and hoping that you can help with the problem which of course in the case of cancer patients are often very very unique and sometimes debilitating and I I appreciate that you brought up the involvement of industry this is clearly important to recognize in that the area is exploding rapidly and we're gaining more and more capabilities because of industry involvement and interest. And of course, industry does have a lot to gain from that, but I don't think that means it needs to be sort of an acrimonious relationship where um, we should say, oh, well, industry only wants us to use their device because they're trying to get money. I believe that it can, and it has been a very symbiotic relationship in uh, getting these tools into our hands. And of course, in the US, we're certainly a few years away from what you have available in Italy uh, because of the uh, FDA's and these kind of things. And so you get to use some of the the cooler and exciting toys that even Spinejack was uh, you had in Europe for many years before we recently, in the last few years, got it in the US. And so it's very important to, of course, I- I- acknowledge all of that and the industry involvement. But one thing that I got from what you were saying and just the complexity of the general patients you're seeing is you're not doing the intercept procedure, the superion procedure or the watchman procedure. I hear these things get thrown around and I see it a lot in LinkedIn because of LinkedIn by its nature is sort of branding focused. And so, of course, industries and and some physicians will say, we offer... The Vertiflex procedure, or we offer this. But what we try to do is not so much a procedure, it's to use all the different tools in the toolkit to solve a problem. And so I think we take what industry can bring to the table and work with them and get the best tools possible. But in the end, it's about, as you said, precisely identifying what the patient's problem is and and using those tools in the appropriate way rather than, and I'm sure you see many patients and we'll we'll sort of transition into talking about spacers in just a moment, but many patients with lumbar spinal stenosis were probably sent to you. And for one reason or another, a traditional posterior surgical fixation may be better for them. And so that nature that you talked about, the involvement with the surgeons and understanding the indications for a particular approach and knowing that we have a lot of cool stuff in our armamentarium to use, but not to use it in every, in every case.
1: Not in every case, exactly. And I have an excellent relation with all the major vendors, all the major industries, because, you know, they come and they, sometimes they ask, how can I ameliorate this stuff? Because we are the doctors. We know what we need. And we know even the critical point of th- every stuff got a critical point. So I talk a lot with them and I'm very, very happy not to be, I mean, I'm sort of a Switzerland, okay? So completely neutral. But I do love to talk with them, particularly with their bioengineer, because sometimes I say, I would love, life for the confusion, for example, I would love to have some spacer that does this thing because I need it. I don't know how. It's your job. It's not my duty. It's not my job. I don't know how you can, create something that does these things, but if you create something that does this action, it will be better for you and better for the patient. So sponsor uh, industries really appreciated this kind of very friendly and free conversation. The way the products are become better and better and better. That's why they come, for example, to the hands-on, because at the hands-on is a sort of a experimental time. For four days, we show everything new everything that is brand new. And sometimes the same company after one year comes with a light change in the products that just according to our suggestion, for example. It's nice. It's nice to see how things change. Absolutely.
0: And I like looking in some of your cases with spacers and seeing how the shapes have changed over time. I think that's really interesting. And so now as we really delve into this topic, I do want to take just a step back. And so most of our audience are uh, interventional radiologists or perhaps interventional neuroradiologists and in adjacent specialties. But at least here in the US, spacers aren't widely known among our community. It's something that's started to gain a little bit more traction in the spine surgery and interventional pain community, but not, not so much within radiology. So can you please, just for our audience, tell us about what are spacers, what's the problem they're trying to solve and how do they stack up to the alternatives
1: well as you know spasers have been created for spinal canal stenosis that is common it's a, i mean spinal canal stenosis is a very common disease in the old age and this that's the key honestly it's not a degenerative disease it's a genetic disease because it's related to a problem about the catalase enzyme in the ligaments these people got a lower level of catalase so the ligaments become older quickly. And that's why they become, they become to compress and they create the spinal canal. But in any case, just not to be extremely I mean, boring about genetics, it's a degenerative disease that is related to ligaments that compress the nerves. And this is completely different from the spinal canal stenosis related to the bone. If I have a spinal canals, a heart spinal canal stenosis, because of arthrosis, because of deformation of the facet, because of congenital spinal, spinal canal, lower, I mean, diameter. Okay, no possibility for spacers. The idea of spacers is putting something in between two spinous process, stretching the ligaments, enlarging the spinal canal. And we started with this idea, I remember many, many, many years ago. It was around 2006. I think that I I used all the spacers available in the world. I cannot say a brand for, I mean, not to do uh, advertisement, okay? But all the spacers that came in the market, percutaneous and not percutaneous, percutaneous, mainly percutaneous, I use all of them, American and European devices. Nowadays, in Europe, we use mainly 102, honestly. The problem with the spacer is, number one, when suggesting a spacer, you have a patient that is an old guy with a progressive disease. So you have to do something, because if you, uh, uh, spinal canal stenosis is not like a fracture or not like an hernia. You can heal from a fracture spontaneously, and you can have the di- di- disappearing of an hernia in three months. All of us knows Spinal canal stenosis is a one-way disease. It always become worse and worse and worse. I mean, people lose the capability of moving the legs, starting from leg pain, and ending with paralysis. So you have to do something. Up to now, surgery is a nice idea, but surgery is aggressive. Because if you want to open the spinal canal, that means you have to do laminectomy, at least laminectomy, one side. Generally speaking, you create instability, so you have to put a posterior fixation too. Okay, we are talking about three, four, not incredibly difficult treatment or for a neurosurgeon. It's like doing plastic for me; it's easy. But we are talking about a surgery of three hours, four hours, general anesthesia in a man that, generally speaking, is a eighty years old guy, and there is the post op recovery. Okay, I put a spacer with a CT, and I put a spacer in three minutes and a half. It's it's not just to say, okay, a time. My technician simply used the chronometer. Okay, I put a spacer. From the very first time I I do the incision, that is a five millimeter incision on the the lateral side. To the end of the story, when I suture, the cut I did, it's three minutes and a half. So you have to compare a treatment of three hours with a treatment of three minutes. During these three minutes and a half, Two minutes would be, honestly, incredibly painful if you do in local anesthesia only. So we don't do general. We do analgo sedation. My patient, all my patients, lie on the prone position. They watch a TV set I put on uh, just in front of them. So they watch, generally speaking, they watch the Hawaii. Yeah, there is a movie about Hawaii. So they feel relaxed. They see them see. Hawaii is magic place. And for two minutes, my anesthesiologists switch off the lights. I mean, you know, they do midazolam. They do something that I don't, I don't understand this, such a things. But they sleep for two minutes. Because in these three minutes and a half, two minutes would be painful. So again, compare three hours against three minutes. General anesthesia against analgo sedation. And post-op, all my patients with a spacer go back home in two days, and there is no rehabilitation. They are not to stay in the bed for two weeks. If we are talking about people that are 80, so osteoporotic, mm, heart disease could be, thrombosis could be, I mean, they are all guys. So the less invasive you are, no general anesthesia, quick time, fast recovery, all these things make the idea of using spacer, a winning idea, starting from one point. It is something that I always say to the patient and they have to understand. Spinal canal stenosis is a bad disease. It's a disease that got a positive and a negative thing. The negative things is that destroy the nerves. And we cannot change the past of people. We can change the future. So if the patient he got a denervation from two years after a spacer, it will not run the next Olympic Games 100 meters, okay? And the same, if we do open surgery, it's not depending on surgery, it's depending on the damage that exists. Even if, he, uh, if I open completely a spine of a patient, if the nervous damage remain damaged, this is something that patient has to understand. So the negative thing is that the disease goes on the positive things is that goes on slowly, so no emergency, no run to the surgeons. I mean, you have time to understand and to decide what kind of treatment do you want, but generally speaking, if according to our results, we published our results last year on Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery, if I remember well, about 800 people, up to now we reached more than 1,000 spacers, okay? But at that time, it was 800. But the positive results was around 93%. 93% in people that are 80 years old and they got no solution but doing open surgery, okay, I buy it. I buy it because simply if people tell me that if I buy a lottery ticket and I got 90% winning, I mean, possibility to win, I will buy all the lottery tickets in that shop. And probably I will buy even the seller, the shop seller, and bring it in my house. Okay, come on. It's an excellent percentage. And number two, if it fails, and fail means that after six months, I always check my patient after six months, after six months, the patient says, despite the spacer, If the patient says, I'm exactly as I was before, I say, okay, it's working. It's working. It's okay. We stopped the disease. That was our goal. Because we cannot treat your nerves. Nerves are are out. The damage is definitive. We can treat the pain in another way. But we stopped the disease. If the patient says, after six months, despite the spacer, I'm still worsening. So I, I see that things are coming worse and worse and worse. Okay, failure is part of our life, but they can do the surgical treatment. You cannot do the opposite way. You cannot do surgery, open surgery, and then putting a spacer. Obviously, no sense. It's impossible. But if the spacer fail, you have another, another option. You have a plan B. But I repeat, this plan B up to now is for no more than 1% of people 1% is very, very low percentage of failure, according to me.
0: I agree. That's a very, very low rate to need to go on to surgery. And, and is that that's generally what you're seeing in, in your practice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We did that. As I told you, we have to talk about spinoplasty, honestly. We had a great difference in, in my patient before 2013 and after 2013. I'll explain you why independently from the hand that put a spacer. A spacer is something hard in between two bones. Bones is a living tissue. So if I put a spacer in between two spinous processes, there is a percentage of failure related to number one fracture of spinous processes. I remember, I got fractures in the past. I remember, I put a spacer And I felt with my hand a crack. It's not nice when you feel a crack when you're doing something, okay, in your patient. But it was a fracture. Or people that stay well for one year and they restart to have the same pain. And they come back to you. And you do a CT. And you see that there was a bone remodeling. That means failure. And independently from... It was the same. Surgical spacer, percutaneous spacer, at the end of the sp- story, it's always one hard thing in between two spinous processes and one round thing, generally round. All the spacers are round. After 2030, I and other two crazy guy, okay, we say, okay, the problem is not the spacer. The problem is the bone. We have to do something for the bone. Oh, come on. It's ages that we, as a neuroradiologist, put the PMMA inside the bone of people with uvativeoplasty. Why we don't put the PMMA in the spinous processes? We started to do spinoplasty. That is difficult. I have to admit that when I started, it was tough. Nowadays, okay, it's easy. But if you manage to put in the spinous process a drop of PMMA, one cc, because I'm not talking about a vertebral body, okay? That's it's easy. It's difficult to put a PMMA in your tooth, okay? It's difficult. But if you put the PMMA in the spinous process, and you wait for two months, one, one month and a half, two months, everything will be so hard that when you put the spacer after, no possibility of fracture, zero, no possibility of bone remodeling. So I started to do this procedure in 2013, and honestly, I got very, very low level of complication, not complication, low level of failure related to spacer, things nowadays could change because in Europe, and I think it's coming in, in the US, there is a new spacer that is not round, that it's squared, it's fully squared. It, it's funny because everything is squared, even the, the stuff that we use is completely squared. In this space, the fact that it's squared, from a biomechanical point of view, it's reasonable because it's something flat that is in between two flat things. If you put something round between the two lamina, you have two small points of contact. I mean, the North Pole and the South Pole. And there is an incredible stress in a very thin area. So a great biomechanical stress. But if you distribute the low stress equally along the lamina, putting a squared percutaneous spacer. This makes the difference. That's why, for example, a lot of surgical spacers are flat. There are a lot of spacer that are not ra- surgical spacer that are not round but flat, because lamina are flat. So we have to use something that is more suitable for lamina. I think and I believe that in the future, probably, this extra step of spinoplasty could be avoided. It's an ongoing, I mean, evaluation, but I do believe that probably the less stress load from this new kind of spacer, it will be possible to skip the spinoplastic. Up to now, we do it, but I think that in a couple of years, probably it will disappear. We will see.
0: Yeah, thank you for walking through the biomechanical rationale there, talking about the problem of implant subsidence, which of course, is something that surgeons deal with all the time. And as you said, it's just a natural consequence of something hard going up against something softer and living, which is bone. And having a more square contact certainly be very useful for mitigating that. As you said, the round surface, you really have kind of a tangent line where they're interacting and the North Pole and South Pole, like you said, and it makes perfect sense why that would start to subside. I do want to just draw attention to the paper that you put out and we'll link it in the show notes regarding the spinous process augmentation or spinoplasty, as you call it. The results were really quite striking. Could you just say what the, the numerical results of that retrospective study were?
1: Simply we saw that before spinoplasty we got a failure of a percentage of failure of thirteen percent. That this was the same failure of surgical spacers. Because it's the same story. After spinoplasty era, we have a failure in 0.7%. So it was a dramatic improvement in, in our statistic. It, it was definitely great. That's why we decided to maintain this kind of pre-treatment. It's a sort of a reinforcing the spinous processes to have less problem when you put a spacer. And that's why I always do spinoplasty in my patient.
0: That's amazing, and I love the simple design of that study and just looking at symptom recurrence as uh, what you're trying to get it's It's very much a a real world kind of study, not looking at kind of a bunch of extraneous measurements, like you know you weren't actually looking at degree of implant subsidence or anything or anything like that, although the patients did tend to in, end up having spinous process fracture or subsidence which led to those symptoms in those failures and one thing i've noticed since learning about this is it's extremely underemployed in the us i'm not sure if that's been your experience in europe as well or if there's been more uptake but here i can i can think of one person who uses it which is dr beal and among the larger interventional pain community you see a number of spacers placed in osteoporotic patients and have never seen another time this technique be used so i think it's a shame and perhaps as you said with newer designs in the future biomechanically we won't need to deal with that but i think about this you know especially in the context of osteoporotic patients and it's not an unusual practice in spine surgery to augment instrumented bone you know that has pedicle screws in it if the bone quality is very poor to use cement augmentation and so this is very much in line with that, as you said, you kind of have the the pre-treatment aspect of it. I think here in the U.S., it, since the procedure itself it's probably an unlisted procedure, it would probably need to be done in the context of the actual spacer. So they're maybe not giving the processes that much time to solidify, as you said could lead to slightly inferior results. But that's. it sounds like that's been your practice for some time is to pre-treatment with the spinoplasty yeah.
1: before moving on. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I remember in the past I did simultaneously the two treatments. Then my idea was that when you inject the PMMA in the spinous process, it's like when you do an embolization of an aneurysm. You see everything black and you know that it's only 30% of coil and 70% of blood. And the same for the the PMMA. It's hard to inject the PMMA in the spinous process, and not all the cancellous bone is filled by the PMMA. But PMMA creates an osteosclerotic reaction around. So when you inject it and you wait a little bit, it's a little bit better. And another thing that should be stressed is that no complication. I mean, I never have a complication about injecting in the spinous process, it's a very, very, very safe area. It's not a fracture, so no leakage, zero. I cannot even imagine a complication. It's a little bit difficult from a technical point of view, but it's a very useful, honestly, pre-treatment according to me.
0: And uh, talking about the technical point of view, could you walk us through your actual approach to this? And you, as you said earlier, of course, fond of the, the CT Uh, approach as well. I know you also frequently use the CT combined CT-fluoro approach. So what's your approach in these cases?
1: Generally speaking, I'm a radiologist, so I'm scared about radiation because we know what radiation does. So I try to to reduce as much as I can the amount of radiation for the patient and the amount of radiation for myself. I frequently use the combined technique, so the CT and the C-arm. But I switch on the C arm only when it's absolutely necessary. So particularly if we are talking about spacer, ninety percent of the procedure I do is with the CT. That means selecting the entry point, putting the spine guy wire, checking the position of the guy wire, and when the guy wire is, is in the proper way, as deep as possible in between the two spinous process, okay, when, when I know the time in the right place, then I pull out the patient from, from the gantry, I switch on my the C-arm, and then I do my treatment. That means entering with a dilator and then putting the spacer and then open the spacer. But all this procedure, it's around, I would say, no more than 15, 20 seconds of radiation. The most of time we spend with a C-arm or with fluoroscopy is to putting the first step in the proper way, to putting the guy wire in the best place. So if I use the CT, I have number one, a legal documentation where I am. Okay, I can prove that I put the guy wire in the best place. So if I skip all the first parts of treatment, putting the guy wire in the, in the right place, then all the rest will be very, very, very fast because all the procedure is extremely fast. Honestly, percutaneous spacer introduction is one of the, s- the faster procedure I, I do. So uh, it's, it's a couple of minutes, as I told. And I do love to use the CT. I mean, use whatever you want, because it depends on, on what you have, even in your department. I'm lucky. Particularly now, I'm lucky because they created a department for me. So they bought a CT with a very large gantry that is the CT that they generally use for doing the targeting for radiotherapy, okay? So it's a large country, very large. But you can do the treatment even using your fluoroangio or your real-time CT or whatever you want. I prefer the CT just to even to reduce the dose, the radiation dose for the patient. You know what? There is a paper on radiology comparing the amount of dose absorbed by the patient with the same procedure, using only the fluoroscopy, so operating room, or using the CT. And you know what? It, it was a vertebroplasty. And the patient spared 90% of radiation when you use the CT. Nine zero. 90% less radiation for the patient. And nowadays, people are particularly alerted about radiation There is a European community law, that uh, recommendation. We are moving to a world where people are aware about radiation and we have to tell the people how many radiation we give them for doing a treatment. So if we manage to reduce the dose, it's better. So that's why I always say I'm addicted to the CT. But honestly, a lot of friends of mine put spacer in an excellent way Using the fluoroscopy, I'm not. A, I, I'm not against. i again. Use the things that you things that is better even for you and for your mentality or the way or your habit used to. Okay, so it's the same. And in the future, we will use something different. I will tell you in a while. But my idea is that we will use something different from from all of these things. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I can certainly see that happening. I I think it's really impressive the 90% reduction that you mentioned using CT in the initial stage for placing the implant and with your kind of setup where you can have the C-arm in the room, it just sounds like an ideal approach for it. And you use the CT just kind of for the targeting and very, very precise targeting to get through the interspinous space. But using CT, since we're so used to doing this and, and placing needles at very perpendicular directions... And in this case, all you're doing is placing a guide wire completely horizontally, perfectly parallel essentially to the floor or where ideally the inner spinous space should be. I really like to hear that. That's, that's very cool. And of course, as you said, flora only is, is a great option as well. There's a bit more back and forth with the C arm, AP lateral, AP lateral kind of thing. But it's all about what you're facile doing. Personally, I think the the combined CT and C-arm approach does sound like it combines the best of both worlds to limit the radiation, like you said, and be as precise as possible, as you said. That concludes part one. Stay tuned for part two coming out soon.
2: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at, at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts, Chris Beck, Sabine Dawn, Michael Barraza,
1: and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon. With support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor
2: Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.